This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you happen to be a first-time listener uh, here at 88.7 or through the internet at wagp.net, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a text of Scripture you're struggling with or you're looking for a biblical answer on some issue you're facing in your family life or ministry. Well, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will do all that we can to respond. Again, the local South Carolina 843 exchange is 525-1859. You can call us toll-free at our 877 number, and that's the call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. We always give preference to live callers, and so if you want to guarantee your question maybe is, Answer today calls live a better chance than uh, someone who just dictates or uh, emails. But let's go ahead and we'll start, Rick. And do we have someone already? We do have a live caller. We have Jack from Pittsburgh on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, Longtime listener, Dr. Brogy. And uh, my question has to do with a movement known as the, uh, I'd like your information on it, known as the New Apostolic Reformation. Yes. It started some time ago by the name of, by a gentleman named of Peter Wagner, and uh, uh, has an understudy. Uh, he's deceased, and uh, his understudy is Dutch Sheets. And uh, my my feeling is that uh, they seem extra-biblical to me in that Scripture is not enough. They need direct contact with God through dreams and audible words of knowledge, and in fact, uh, 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 you can buy a title of apostle for some amount of money from their organization. (laughs) Just wondering if you had any information with respect to that. uh, Yeah, no, it's a great question. So uh, Peter Wagner was a very controversial uh, seminary professor at Fuller Seminary. Fuller began to waver on the doctrines of biblical inerrancies in the 1970s. Tim LaHaye, who is known largely for his prophetic series, Left Behind, actually one of his best works that he ever did, dealt with biblical inerrancy and what was happening, especially at Fuller Seminary and at the time some other seminaries. But Wagner uh, brought in what they called the Signs and Wonders Movement, And, of course, when you begin to question as an institution the absolute authority of Scripture, then typically it's not sufficient, and you open the door for other errors. And so he taught a course called the Signs and Wonders course, where he would train young seminarians in this whole realm in terms of the exercise. And, look, everything that's spiritual spiritual is not spiritually true. And so he planted the seeds for the new apostolic reformation that is clearly an unbiblical movement of sorts. And they put a lot of emphasis on 
mysticism, uh, extra revelational experiences. And you, as you said, they have modern-day apostles. And again, that in and of itself should cause a huge red flag for people because to be an apostle there. And again, I, I should say in fairness, but this is not the issue with them. Uh, there is a technical and non-technical use of the word apostolos or apostoloi, singular, plural in Greek, apostle, apostles. It can be used of someone just who is a sent one, like Epaphroditus is called an apostle in the Greek text. We don't render it that way in English, but he's sent as a servant of the Lord. Um, But in a technical sense, it refers to someone who is personally selected by Jesus Christ. It's like the word deacon. He that would be great among you must be the deacon of all. And most Bibles and most languages of the world just translate it that way. We interpret it in English to distinguish it from the office. And we do the same with apostle. But to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have been personally selected by him. And, of course, um, that was the issue in the upper room. Those were the qualifications, and they're reaffirmed in Paul's epistle because he reminds uh, those who said he was a Johnny-come-lately that he met the qualifications. And, indeed, if someone is selected by the Lord and had seen the risen Christ, then they would have the signs and wonders that only an apostle can do. And so, really, what we read in 2 Corinthians 12 undoes undoes the whole new apostolic um, movement, number one, because no one can see the risen Christ today. Uh, there are people who say, well, I, ha- I saw him in a vision, or um, that's just nonsense. Again, they're, they're using experience over the authority of Scripture. But here's a critical argument that Paul makes here in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve: The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, Paul's argument is meaningless. He has just said, I've become foolish. Uh, You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Paul is very humble, but he wants to make it plain that he is no different from those that Christ selected while he was physically on earth. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. In other words, if these signs, wonders, and miracles could be performed by anyone, then Paul's argument totally falls apart. Now, that's not to say that a God can't do a miracle today. He can. But God doing a miracle through an individual was an apostolic power or an apostolic apostolic designee. But uh, there are no such apostles today. So the whole movement is, well, it's just evil. And these are people who, look, who wants to be sick? Nobody wants to be sick, Jack. You know, people want to be well. They want to be healthy. Um, And so these people are offering things that uh, they should not offer. They're saying they can do things that they cannot do. They're claiming new revelations from God, when the Scripture plainly says in Jude 1 and verse 3 that the faith was delivered once for all time, the Scripture ends with a warning that we're not to add or subtract to the revelation of Scripture. And and though it uses the word new, new apostolic reformation, it's actually a reworking of a very common 
very old era. Since the beginning of Christianity, there have been cultic groups right up into our day, like Jehovah's Witness, like Mormons and others, who are claiming, you know, new additional revelation beyond Holy Scripture. And uh, that's basically what this group is doing. If anyone's involved in it who's listening to me, you should run a 1,000 miles per hour in the opposite direction. Appreciate Jack calling from Pittsburgh. God bless you, Jack, and uh, let us know if we can help you again in the future. Let's go to the next caller. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have Alberto from Savannah, GA. Hello, Alberto. How are you today? Oh, fine. Thank you. Thank you for this portion. Good morning, gentlemen. So my question is, uh, a lot of preachers say that the Christ did not die for the whole world. He did not die for every single human being. And also that uh, the cross-reference, like also like the first family of 314, that the house Christ also that uh, says that Christ only came to the house of Israel, you know, for the Jews or even came to the Israel. Okay, I think I got it. I think I got it. Um, I think I got it, Alberto. Your 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 connection is very 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 poor, so it's coming through more garbled, and most of our people can't understand it. But I think I picked up enough. Uh, the question that you have at hand concerns an, a limited versus an unlimited atonement, or if you want to be more refined in your terms, a particular atonement. Uh, versus an atonement that Christ shed His blood for all men. So there are groups within Calvinism, who are actually more Calvinistic than John Calvin himself was. John Calvin was not a five-point Calvinist. He would be what we would call today a four-point Calvinist. But John Calvin did not believe that Jesus did not die for everyone. And I can prove that from his own commentaries. I have his full set. Uh, With that said, uh, there are brothers in the body of Christ and some of Calvin's later followers who believe that Jesus died only for the elect. And the basic argument is that if Jesus died for all and made a full and complete payment for sin, then his blood was wasted and that a payment was made and yet it didn't apply to those people. And um, so they they maneuver around various scriptures to try to argue for an unlimited atonement. And, of course, when we read John three sixteen, for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only begotten son, in their minds they would say, for God so loved the world of the elect that he gave his only begotten son. A limited redemptionist, a particular atonement position, does not believe that you can look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you, Christ died in your place took your wrath, was raised for you, and if you will call upon him, you will be saved. They don't believe you can look at anyone in the eye and say that because they don't know whether or not you're one of God's elect. And so their terms are couched very carefully. Christ died for those who will repent and believe, meaning only those who will come to genuine faith did he die for. So you can begin to pick up their position if you listen carefully to their words. But again, they're not consistent. Let me just give you an example. In 1 John 2, it's the same word, world. John has just said, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And so uh, he 
differentiates our sins, meaning those who have received Jesus as Lord, and not just our sins, but for those of the whole world. In fact, he will say a little bit later in this same chapter, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world for all that is in the world. You know, and again, here the world world is in reference to the world system. The world is passing away, and it's also its lust, but he that does the will of God abides forever. And so context is everything. Um, and I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for all people. Let me give you another example. And by the way, if this is something that's of interest to you, someone listening for further study, we have something known as the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's uh, 36 hours of study, and you can get it at searchthescriptures.org. It's free unless you ask for actual DVDs of the lessons. You can download the handouts, the note-taking handouts, and different courses are offered. And one course is uh, Christology, where we deal with the extent of the atonement and different views of the atonement. There have certainly been erroneous views as to why Christ died or what he accomplished. But for instance, in Second Peter chapter 2, the apostle argues, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying, here it is, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Jesus died even for these false, unbelieving, apostate teachers that are described in Second Peter chapter 2. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5, when he deals with uh, Adam, as a picture of one kind of man in Christ, the second Adam, accomplishing something entirely different. He makes a parallel between Adam and Moses that totally falls apart if Jesus did not die for all people. And so he says, for if the transgression of the one, for if by the transgression of the one, he's talking about Adam, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the one Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? Well, he's making a parallel. If you back it up just a little bit in Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, speaking of Adam's sin, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And so just as Adam's sin resulted in condemnation to all. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and so death through sin. Even so, through Christ's death, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the one transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more, and again, it's qualified, those who receive. So just because Jesus died for all doesn't mean all that are saved. That's universalism. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation, there, uh, through, excuse me, so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, one act of righteousness, speaking of Jesus' death, there resulted justification of life to all men. And again, he is making a clear 
distinction between Adam's sin and Christ's act. He's not saying all are saved because he's just qualified those who receive this gift are justified. So the doctrine of limited atonement is a false doctrine. You know, people will say, well, you know, um, we can believe in limited atonement and still love the lost. Well, you may, but I can tell you right now, those who teach a limited redemption are not very evangelistic. They take a very, I think, distorted view. You know, God's going to save everyone, so all are going to go to heaven, and we don't even have to worry about evangelism because all the elect will be saved. And and uh, this is this is twisted. This These are mind games when I go to other foreign countries where people haven't, quote-unquote, been to seminary and things like this, and they try to, you know, put together, where do folks get this? Well, they made it up. That's what they did. They made it up. It's not taught in Holy Scripture. But if you want to study in-depth, I have a whole hour walking through dozens of verses. It's in my course on Christology and uh, you can get it at searchthescriptures.org. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Olivia from Beaufort dictated, or actually emailed her question. She writes, I'm wondering how Pastor Brogy comes to choose songs that are sung in the church on Wednesdays and Sundays. I assume you make sure the lyrics are theologically sound, but what about the person or group who wrote the song? Is that and their beliefs and what they support taken into consideration? For example, I once remember hearing the song Mighty to Save frequently at CBC, but in past years I have not. I know it's by Hillsong, a church that's no longer biblically grounded, and wondered if that might be why. Well, you said no longer because they their genesis was not that way. And so, no, we don't use any of Hillsong or Bethel and certain other groups because of where they started doctrinally or where they ended up. I was uh, speaking with Dr. Ice. We had a lot of theological discussions while he was here. My major was in Bible exposition. His was in historical theology. So we were, you know, um, bleeding off of each other and pulling each other's thoughts together. And and we were talking about a course that we had taken at, at Dallas Seminary by someone who I think is still the foremost uh, historical uh, church historian who's alive, Dr. John Hanna. And Dr. Hanna um, has done a tremendous amount of research since the Reformation on the lifespan of churches and parachurch organizations and the like, and whether it's a college or seminary or an organization like the Salvation Army. And the lifespan typically on average is about 60 years before they go liberal. So sometimes it's much shorter. Sometimes a church will start, and they start in a good place, but then they begin to wander. So Hillsong actually had some very good godly people. They actually sang some songs that were written by some good godly people. Uh, There used to be a brother in Georgia who was a very popular writer in the 1970s, but B.J. Thomas sang his songs, and then B.J. Thomas went over the edge. Um, but Hillsong started well, but they haven't finished well, and so we dropped them a long time ago uh, because of their association with Bethel. Bethel started wrong and are still wrong and have all kinds of false theological positions that they hold. So one, in choosing songs, and, and please understand, I don't sit there every week and choose the songs. I have a very able and apt uh, music pastor, uh, Mike Lazinski, who does that. 
Um, that's not to say we never can, excuse me, what did you say? I'm Mike Lazinski, Matt Lazinski. Uh, that's not to say that we don't ever confer. We confer quite often. Sometimes I'll hear him and I'll say, hey, Matt, I heard this, him. This was really like really solid. It might be 200 years old. It might be two months old. And uh, maybe we could put this in the rotation. Occasionally I'll give a suggestion or maybe a particular sermon, but 98% of the time, he chooses all the songs, and he can do that because he is trustworthy and he is sound theologically, and that's the challenge of finding a music minister today. A lot of them are not sound theologically. So number one, a songwriter that you choose should be doctrinally sound, and if they're not, then you shouldn't use their music, and that's why we don't use Hillsong or Bethel. Uh, the scripture says in Ephesians 5, where I've turned, it says we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. So generally speaking, if you can't preach it, if you can't say it, you shouldn't sing it uh, just because it's it's er- in error. And two, uh, sometimes if the songwriter writes a hymn that may be representative of, of scripture, but they're unbiblical in their beliefs, then, in my opinion, you should stray away from their uh, music. God of grace and God of glory. As I even give the title, some of you can hear the music in your mind. Well, that was done by Harry Emerson Fosdick, who denied the virgin birth, the existence of hell, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection. So I wouldn't certainly want to give any honor to his hymn. I went into a, a Methodist church with a group of college students Oh, 40 years ago, and they were using some of Harry Emerson Fosdick's material. And I said, do you guys even know where this man is at? Do you know what his theology was? And when I just, you know, highlighted a few things I just said, oh. Now, where I went to college, I mean, excuse me, to to seminary, at Dallas Theological Seminary, where I did my Master's of Theology, the seminary, seminary hymn was Crown Him With Many Crowns. I love it. It's a great hymn. Now, the author of that particular hymn, though very sound, I have no doubt he's a born-again believer, no doubt at all, converted to Roman Catholicism before he died. Will we still sing his hymn? Yeah, we do. We do. On occasion, on occasion, not, not very often, because it's a sound theological hymn, and he's not receiving any rewards from it. All creatures of our God and King— that was Francis of Assisi. He denied salvation by grace. So, you know, I'm not too excited about it. Should we jettison Silent Night? You know, most of us sing that at Christmas. Jesus is Lord at thy birth. He wrote that because someone was denying it. Now, whether or not that priest was born again, I don't know. But he was Roman Catholic. And so, um, you know, a little maybe shaky ground. I I had an opportunity a couple months ago, if I named his name, I don't think I'm going to, but he was in one of the highest political positions in the United States, and they wanted me to come and speak on a Wednesday night, and I just said, well, uh, that's, not a, that's not a good time. I'm hoping, actually, if he runs for president, for him to come through and for me to dialogue with him, but he, I have no doubt he's a born-again Christian, but he converted to Roman Catholicism. Why on earth would he do that? And so on the one hand, I wouldn't want to support that because if he came into my church and I allowed him to speak, it might be one thing for me to introduce him because he represents, you know, godly values. Um, but he is a believer. But, you know, if Trump, say, came to our church 
and wanted to uh, be a part of our worship service, yes, I would love for him to come. Did I vote for Trump? Yes. Why would I vote for a baby murderer? Why would I vote for someone who um, aspired to uh, promote homosexuality and homosexual marriage? He was actually Joseph Biden, the one who forced Obama's hand, who ran the first time saying that marriage was between a man and a woman. I wouldn't want to vote for someone like that, someone who's against Israel, who's just gotten in bed in the last month with Iran, which has made the Saudis angry that just cut our oil production by 2 million barrels. And, you know, we're taking emergency reserves that are to be used in time of war. And we could be in real trouble here. This guy just doesn't connect the dots. But would I let Trump, would I introduce him? Yes. Would I let him speak? No, not not on your life. So um, those are factors I think you need to also ask, has a songwriter fallen into sin? This used to be a Moody Bible, um, uh, Moody Radio affiliate. We dropped them for some theological reasons, but they dropped a woman who used to sing often in their music platform. Her name was Sandy Patty. Sandy Patty had a breathtaking voice. It was just beyond imagination. God doesn't give too many people to be able to sing like Sandy Patty. But when she, you know, divorced her husband over an affair with someone in the music group, we're not about to play her music. And let me just say, too, one of the bigger arguments concerning not using someone like Hillsong is that when you use them, you're helping them in two ways. Number one, some young person who maybe is not all that discerning comes into the church and by your association with a song that might actually be sound theology, they explore the group and get into their theology, which is bad. So you lead them into error and you help to underwrite their bad theology. Every church has to have a CCLI license, which is uh, indexed to the size of your church. And so since we're a larger church, we pay a rather large sum of money. And so um, my music pastor, Matt, has to, you know, mark off. We sang this song many times and this song that many times. And then from the licensing fee, the particular organization or individual is, uh, is paid money. And so why do I want to support Hillsong that has gone south in their theology, especially with their affiliation with Bethel? I wouldn't. So bottom line, you know, we are to sing what we can say and preach. Jesus said to the woman at the well, you worship God in spirit and in truth. And so with your whole heart sincerely, but it has to be truth. Every element of a particular song should be theologically sound, and if it's not, you shouldn't use it. That's a great question. I'll tell you, churches split all the time over music. I was in a Baptist church in North Carolina uh, visiting, and the music pastor was young, and uh, I wrote him a very kind email. One encouraged him that uh, he had a group of people on the platform with him, and I'm not real keen on most praise bands because they tend to become 90% of the time self-centered, egotistical, look at me, listen to my voice, and they very often rob the congregation, too, from their ability to sing because it's more of a performance where people are listening rather than participating. 
But one, I affirmed him the way they did it was very, very well done. But I said, hey, look, two of the songs you used were by errant authors. Would I want to use Ray Bolt's song? Uh, what was the one we did, Rick, at the end of all the uh, Sherathons? Now, thank you for giving to the Lord. Thank you for giving to the Lord. You know, the guy came out as a flaming homosexual. Why would I want to use his song? Obviously, I would not. And so, um, with that said, I just encouraged this young pastor, and he was young, and and he wrote me back and just thanked me, hadn't thought about it, that um, this group that they were using had errant theology, and I gave him some specific examples, and they were helping to support that group by the CCLI licensing fees that they used. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, a listener just called in and dictated their question. He says, John's gospel seems a day off from the synoptics, which he talks about a day of preparation, which would seem to make the crucifixion on Thursday. And in Jonah, three days and three nights, which Jesus referred to as the sign of Jonah for the Messiah. But where is the third night for Jesus? Well, in Scripture, and you might want to go to my uh, series on Jonah because I cover this very issue, but in Scripture, part of a day can be considered a whole day. I think, actually, they must have been listening to Search the Scriptures this morning because you had just talked about that on today's episode. Yeah, so if you listen to it, or sometimes I'll I'll cover something over two sermons— uh, or two broadcasts, because I usually preach for over an hour, and so you're hearing a snippet of that hour-long sermon that Rick might take three days to play, but I cover it in the series on Jonah. And there are examples in Scripture where a part of a day is representative of a whole day, like with Esther, and I and I cite a number of biblical passages. And so with uh, three days, three nights does not demand a Thursday crucifixion, And when you read John's gospel, and what you might want to do is download the Search the Scriptures app. If you go to the app store, it looks kind of like a blue triangle. Uh, It's searchthescriptures.org. There are some, one other organization.com, different organization. Not bad as far as I know. They don't have much preaching, but um, you can also listen to the series that I've done on the gospel of John, because I think I've done 60-some sermons on that. And there are two Sabbaths that are interfacing with one another. So it's a little bit of an armchair question, but if that's something you want to study, go ahead and listen not only to what I'm preaching in Jonah. Make sure you listen to the whole sermon because I address it. But you can also go to John's Gospel where I deal with the chronology of the crucifixion. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Joshua from J. Maine writes, My family has recently found a doctrinally sound church after a while of looking for one. It is a small congregation of 15 people or so. When we asked the pastor there about membership, he said it wasn't something they did. So my question is, membership is, is membership commanded in Scripture, and should I be concerned? Now, it's a good question. It's a fair question. And so let's let's define some terms and some perspectives. When we think about the church, it's used of the local church primarily about 100 times. I think it was 98, and I cover this in my course on ecclesiology, which, again, is also available at searchthescriptures.org. And then there's the universal church that I think is used like 16 times. The universal body of Christ speaks of everyone 
who is saved in spite of denominational stripe, wherever they may be in the world. And the word ecclesia, too, is used in a couple of uh, uh, senses of a, that are not speaking of born-again believers. Like in Acts, there's a mob, a secular heathen mob in Ephesus that wants to murder Paul. They're called the ecclesia. They're called out people to kill Paul. Uh, even Israel, when Stephen gives that great sermon in Acts 7, he speaks of the ecclesia, um, the assembly, as it were, the NAS renders it in the wilderness to distinguish it in most people's mind from, from what we would call the church, either universal or local. So with that said, the local church is really the microcosm, at least it's supposed to be, of the universal body of Christ. And as a general rule, to be um, a member of a local church, if the church is worth its salt, you need to make sure the person is first a member of the universal body of Christ. Now, there are some churches that, in my opinion, threw the baby out with the bathwater and that they eliminated church membership altogether because they saw the abuse of it. Chuck Smith, who's in heaven now, Love the guy, a good Bible teacher, but he saw through uh, the, the 60s and 70s all these churches that had members on their roll who were lost. In fact, uh, he was in a church where when all the hippies were coming in and all the beatniks, as they were called, they weren't too welcomed by people who were members but ne- not, not really born again. And he said, forget you guys. And so he started reaching a lot of these people. I don't think it was the greatest revival in the history of the church. I I do think the first and second great awakenings had more people, but a whole bunch of folks met the Lord Jesus during that period of time. And so in the process, he just eliminated membership. And so we have the Calvary uh, Church movement that for the most part, there may be an exception out there because, again, they're autonomous, but for the most part, they do not have membership. But I don't think that's wise for several reasons. And let me just say parenthetically, um, you asked the question, uh, where in the Bible is church membership commanded? It's not. It's assumed. There's a lot of things that we do not do by direct command, but we do by a biblical model or assumption. And so, for instance, there's not a command, a direct command in the epistles to appoint deacons, but it's assumed that you'll have deacons so much so that Paul gives the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy 3. So there are many examples I could cite where there's not a direct command, but there's an assumption that you will do it. And so as you read through the New Testament, there are many examples where the church clearly had membership. I've turned to Acts 2, and it says, And the Lord added to them day by day those who were being saved. So the verse indicates that salvation was a prerequisite to those who were added to the church. And it appears from verse 41 of that chapter that they were keeping a numerical record of those who were saved and becoming a part of that local fellowship. So churches should, A, require regeneration before membership. And this is critically important. I've met pastors who say, well, look, if we can get them to join the church where they feel comfortable around us, then, you know, hopefully we can get them saved. That's antithetical to Scripture. What fellowship has light with darkness? None, Second Corinthians 6. And so when you allow unbelievers 
into your membership than you allow the church to throw up over your local assembly because there'll be unbelievers who will live the kind of lifestyle that won't be a good testimony. So sometimes someone will say to me in the community, well, I don't want to go to that church. Why? Well, you know, there's hypocrites there. I said, really? Like who? And they'll name a person. I'll say, well, actually, that person is not even a member of our church. They attend, and anyone is welcome to attend, drunks, drug addicts, pimps, prostitutes, homosexuals, lesbians. I don't care who comes. Anyone is welcome to come. But to be a member, well, that's quite a different story. And so even in Acts 6, where you find the first deacons, uh, there's an assumption, choose from among yourselves seven men full of the Holy Spirit and with wisdom, that those people among them have a formal association with the local church. It's assumed in the exercise of your spiritual gifts. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, Peter will say in 1 Peter 4.10, uh, use your gift, exercise your gift uh, in serving one another. There's an assumption in 1 Corinthians 16 that on the first day of the week, you give your tithes to your local church, to those who are to be supported. There's an assumption in Acts 13 that a church will support missionaries. Who? Well, those that the local church takes on. Um, But again, if there's no membership, there's no real accountability, there's no organization. Um, When the writer of the Hebrews says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they give watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There's an assumption that they are watching over certain souls. The pastor and the elders of a local church, whatever your church polity might be, he's not responsible for all Christians in the world. He's not responsible for all the Christians in the community. I know a Christian man in the community right now. I think he's born again, but he's living in an illicit relationship. The pastor of that church ought to exercise church discipline over him, but I'm not responsible for him because he's not a member of our local assembly. And so when you read Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, bring it to the church. So again, when you obey your leaders and submit to them, it assumes that you're under their authority. Um, It assumes when you exercise church discipline that you're not doing it with anyone and everyone, but those who are part of your local fellowship. And so, you know, Paul speaks, even in 1 Corinthians 6, of those who are inside the church and those who are outside of the church. And so there's an assumption that you can define who's in and those who are out. So church membership is taught plainly in Scripture by example. Churches that throw it out, I think, are making a huge mistake. Their motivation might have been pure at their start because they didn't want people simply on the rolls. But that's another altogether different problem. When you allow people to join the church and you haven't checked them out. We had someone who came to join the church uh, last month and uh, if I had just, are you a Christian? Yes. Have you been baptized since you've been saved? Yes. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I don't get in on the counseling of each and every person who comes down front. I said, on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I don't know, 100, I'm positive. How sure are you if you died right now that you go to heaven? She said 90%. She came to meet the pastor that night, ended up receiving Christ. Now, if I just took her testimony at face value, I might have assumed that she was a believer. 
she might have said, like the guy in my yard who was helping to dig a well with an excellent well company, he said he was 110% sure he was going to heaven. And when I asked him why, it was because he was a good guy. He was 110% wrong. And so it's important that when we bring people into the membership of the assembly, we make sure they're born again. And by the way, there are only two requirements for membership in the local assembly. A is the person has been regenerate. Now, are there going to be lost people who know right theology who are not regenerate? Of course. Uh, Definitely. You can only go by what they say, but when their lifestyle at some point denies what they say, then you exercise church discipline. A young man came to our church recently. He had one question on his meet the pastor form, and we have questions that believers can ask. We have questions that unbelievers could ask. He said, has this church ever practiced church discipline? And I said, well, since I've been the pastor, we've practiced it over 50 times. And I think only on six or seven occasions did it ever go to the third level where a brother doesn't listen to those who reprove him in private. And so you take two or three, and then you bring it to the whole church. And in two cases, the person was restored, because that's your goal ultimately is restoration. So again, no church membership, no accountability. And that's what some people want. They don't want any accountability. Uh, They don't want to define terms. And that's what some pastors want, because that's how you grow big churches. And that's one of the reasons an unbelieving world is throwing up all over the church in America, because there is no real accountability, and there's no process by which a person is identified as a believer or as an unbeliever. Great question. So, uh, you know, to answer specifically, should you be concerned? Yes, if you can find another church, I would go there. But sometimes, the only church in the community that has the gospel and is teaching the Word of God might be a church that doesn't have membership, and you go with the best church that you can find, but ideally they will have membership, and a membership that's well-defined and is accountable. Good question. Let's go on. All right. Uh, Well, so last week we had an incredibly busy week with the missions conference and everything, Mm -hmm. and uh, I knew you were going to take a look at this particular next question. I didn't know whether you had yet had a chance to or not. Uh, What's the next question? So this was from Sherry, who had called in and dictated her question last week. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Zach Wendall. So you sent me a link to that, and I glanced at it, and I went to their website, and there's no doctrinal statement. Mm, Okay. So that's the first thing I look for. Now, this guy could be wonderful. He may be wonderful, but if a group or an organization doesn't put a doctrinal statement. Well, in my appointment, that lacks wisdom. And maybe if Sherry knows them, she should write them and say, hey, can I see your doctrinal statement? Most evangelical organizations have a drop-down menu somewhere where it says about us, and it might tell who's in the leadership of the church or their history or what we believe or doctrinal statement and something to that effect, and you should click on that. Because now that's not a guarantee. There are older churches, even in our own community, who have a solid doctrinal statement, but who are liberal, but it's a starting place. But there is no doctrinal statement, at least that I could find there. So, you know, there, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of Christian ministries out there. And I don't have time to listen to this guy. 
Um, yeah, he had a, a one-year Bible study of the Old and New Testament. Yeah, so again, it might be great, but I would certainly want to see a doctoral statement as a starting point. All right. Deborah from Tingsboro, Mass. Let me just go back to that. Let's just say he's got this Bible study of the Old and New Testament. And I went to his doctrinal statement, and he was a millennial, and he believed that there was no future for national Israel and that the church had replaced Israel. The way he's going to look at the Old Testament is going to be very, very slanted. The way he's going to look at end times events is going to be very, very slanted. So if I'm going to invest my time in Bible study with a group that's going to survey the Old and New Testament, I would certainly want them to be pre-millennial, and I would certainly not want them to affirm replacement theology. Uh, If you're looking for a book that maybe kind of surveys you through the Old and New Testament, a classic work was written by Henrietta Mears, and it's entitled What the Bible is About. What the Bible is About, I think that's the title. Um, She was instrumental when Billy Graham was a young man in encouraging him in his walk with Christ, and she was also instrumental in leading Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, to Christ into the kingdom of God. Anyway, let's go to the next one. All right. Deborah from Tingsboro, Massachusetts says, I have a friend who has asked me, how can a person know if they've gone too far for God to save? Also, will a person be aware that they have not believed for so long and now cannot believe because God has made it that way? If these are ridiculous questions, please disregard. Well, no, it's not a ridiculous question. It's actually a very, very good question. And so let me just go to one a New Testament text because sometimes we think of Second uh, Thessalonians 2 because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Therefore, God sent upon them, those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. Now, there's a few theologues who try to argue grammatically that that's not the case. Some of them were closely associated with Tim LaHaye, who wrote a biblical series on that, and because he was a multimillionaire and supported a lot of them, I don't know if they fell in line with that or not, but um, most historically believe that that is in reference to the Great Tribulation period, and that people who heard the gospel in clarity and in power before the rapture of the church will not be responsive after the church is taken up. They will believe what's false. So those who are banking on, well, if this rapture thing is true, I'll get my heart right with Christ, don't bank on it. Not to mention there are New Testament examples in the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks of the man who emotionally responds. He intellectually responds. He receives the word with joy. He believes for a while um, in his head only, like the demons believe. But in time of temptation, he falls away. Um, That's not necessarily speaking of someone who can't be saved, but the soil before that is where the devil is given permission to snatch the seed. The text says that he may not believe and be saved. You can read the parable of the sower in the synoptics. You might want to look at Luke 8, where it's a little broader description. But in John 12, the passage that comes to mind, Jesus is dealing with the crowds, the oikos, the multitudes. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who 
is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, here's his response to their unbelief. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, and though obviously it's not capitalized in older editions of the New American Standard, the newer editions do capitalize it because contextually, and I think interpretively, the light here is the Lord Jesus, but he's the one who gives the light, so either way it doesn't change the meaning of the text. While you have the light, and there's no capitals in lowercase letters, the, the translator has to decide that. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs, and it's speaking here of miracles, and John uses the word samion, a miracle with a message, so he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, and he quotes Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so Isaiah is describing the initial response of the nation that he would come to his own, but his own would not receive him, as John has already taught in the prologue to this gospel. Um, For this reason, for what reason? Because they were not believing in him. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. And he, and he here contextually is Yahweh, he, God, has blinded their eyes. He, God, has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. So this is a warning that you don't have all day. Jesus has already stated, it's recorded in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Understand, salvation did not begin with you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men cannot respond. That does not mitigate against free will, but the initiative began with God. So don't brag about how you read this apologetic book or you reasoned this or that. Any reasoning that you did, any apologetic book that you read and your eyes were open, that was God initiating with you. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And so I am sick to death of these self-centered testimonies where people give glory to themselves rather than to God who initiated with them. But when you put God off, look, you don't draw yourself into the kingdom. God draws you into the kingdom. That's his work. It begins with him. And if you keep saying no to God, no to God, God brings this person, no. God brings this person, no. I was sharing with a person just a couple days ago. My wife and I went out on the pier, and we walked there sometimes once a day, and you know, I see it as an evangelistic opportunity and, and hey, talking to this guy and I said, Hey, how you doing? Good. Do you catch any fish? No, no, no. And we chatted and Hey, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? He said, no, I don't really go to church anymore. I said, why not? He said, I was churched out. I said, okay. He said, yeah, it was like every day and it was for hours on end and oh, okay. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, no. I said, oh, I was just going to ask you how sure you were on a scale of zero to 100. If you were to die, you're going to have to see that. That's what I don't like. And I said, well, I'm just concerned for people. I'm a pastor. He said, are you a pastor of that church that has that food pantry? I said, yes. He said, I've been there before, and they, they asked me that. He said, I don't like questions. I'm not interested. 
okay, well, that, that that's okay. And I left him with this illustration. I said, if you had full-blown cancer and I had a pill here in my pocket, and this was the cure for cancer, and I had it, and I didn't give it to you, I wouldn't be a nice person. That would not be an act of love. And so I said, just understand my motive. I have a cure, not me, but the Bible, Jesus Christ, for eternal death, and it's eternal life, but it's your choice. And we walked away. That guy was hostile. I won't tell you some of the other things that he said over the air, but he was hostile. And is he beyond repair? I don't know. Only God knows that. But you can reach a point where you, because you will not believe, because they would not believe, they could not believe, because God judicially hardens your heart. You say, how do you know if a person's reached that? Well, if they're still willing to dialogue with you and talk about it and consider it, and sometimes you do not definitively know until someone dies, um, you know, and if they die as an unbeliever, well, they, they die lost. So don't give up hope if there is breath. The thief on the cross would have surprised us. The conversion of the Apostle Paul would have surprised us all. Most would have thought he's not just neutral. He hates Christians. He murders them. Paul will never get saved. We need to guard ourselves against Saul of Tarsus. So sometimes God will surprise you. But if a person, you know, is, I hate God. I don't want anything to do with him. Um doesn't mean they're lost. I've met people like that who've come into the kingdom, but it could mean they're lost. And if you're listening to me today and your heart is antagonistic and hostile towards the things of God, you're playing with fire. You're playing Russian roulette with the Christ who did die for you. He shed his blood for you. And therefore, to go back to one of our earlier questions, you will have no excuse. You will not say, well, Jesus didn't die for me. I couldn't even believe if I wanted to. See, that's the fifth point of Calvinism that I find so repulsive, limited atonement. No, the atonement of Christ is not only a basis for salvation for those who believe, it also is a basis of condemnation for those who will not believe. Great question. I think we're out of time, Rick. Uh, Yes, indeed. And uh, just a reminder that we are coming up on our Harvest Festival. Yes. And that is the first Saturday in November. And then the following morning, we have Friend Day at Community Bible Church. Mm. If someone is listening and you have a lost friend on Friend Day, the first Sunday in November, I'll simply be sharing the plan of salvation. Great opportunity to expose them to the claims of Christ. And then that family event for all young and old the night before. 